Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. As Frank rode down the elevator into the mine shaft, he puffed his cigarette. He watched as the stone walls slid up and away as the elevator car descended lower and lower. As they descended into the mine's heart, Frank's mind began to drift to his new bride, Maggie. She had been patient as he had packed her up and moved from a Midwestern farm out to the Tintic Mining District. They were staying at one of the many local boarding houses that helped support the miners in the area. There wasn't much to do in the tiny town of Dividend, or much in the other metal or riches named towns around the district. To even collect his wages, Frank had to go into Eureka, which acted as the hub for most of the events going on around the area. The hole in the middle of the Utah desert had been kinder to Frank than most of the other jobs he had done in his 25 years of life. Sure, he went home sore and calloused, but it was honest work. As the ember of his cigarette glowed in the dark elevator, which was lit only by a single naked bulb, the elevator reached its destination and the men all filed out. Frank used this opportunity to reach up and light his acetylene headlamp with the stub of his cigarette before throwing the butt and crushing it out. The smell of burning acetylene, tobacco, and dust filled his nostrils as he lit up a fresh cigarette. He grabbed his pick and began to trundle to the area his team had been working on the last few days. As Frank left the busier heart of the mine on his way to the branch that he was working, he heard the creaking of the wooden support frames that held up the walls of the branch. He approached his foreman, a Welshman named Jack. Jack was currently talking to another miner that Frank couldn't recognize due to all the dust on his face. The unknown miner was in a rage, saying that his tools had gone missing three days in a row and he couldn't afford to keep losing the gear. Jack was doing his best to calm the man down. He explained that he was sure it was just the Tommyknockers having a bit of fun and that they would probably give it back sooner if he left them the last bit of his lunch. Frank simply sighed and started working at the vein of ore muttering, I ain't got time for some limey fairy tale. As Frank began to break off portions of rock containing ore, he began to hear something. It sounded like a drum from way off in the mine or as if someone was pounding on the other side of the rock wall he was mining from. Frank heard Jack immediately cut himself off mid-sentence and murmur, We need to go. As the pounding started to fade, Frank yelled to Jack that it was probably just an ore cart tipping over somewhere in the mine, echoing down to them, but Jack wouldn't hear it. Don't worry, boys. I will take any punishment in your place if I'm wrong. Jack shouted over the crew as he ordered them to gather their tools and go to the elevator right away. Frank was not one to turn down a break when it was offered, so he began gathering up his pick and shovel, the torch on his helmet hissing as it lit his workspace. As he began walking towards the main shaft of the mine, the noise came again as a deep, throbbing banging, like the mine itself was alive and he was hearing its heartbeat. As the noise ceased again, Jack began to shout to the men to get out as fast as they could. No sooner than the words had left Jack's mouth that Frank began to hear the wooden shaft supports creaking loudly. As soon as Frank began to heed Jack's warning by picking up his pace to a jog, he heard a deafening crash as the shaft wall he had been working on suddenly fell right where he had been standing. Jack screamed out, Caven! Get back to the surface! As the men began to scramble for the elevator, a large whooshing cloud of dirt and debris came from the shaft Frank's crew had been working in. The elevator ride to the surface was tense and silent. As the men filed out after narrowly avoiding a slow, painful death by asphyxiation and crushing, Frank approached Jack. Jack, thank you. You've saved my life, Frank said softly and earnestly. Jack just shook his head and said, No, the knockers did. You can thank them. I just listened to the same warning you got. 
Mining has been a part of human history for thousands of years, with the oldest mines going back to the early Stone Age. Not all the mines operate in the same way, however, with some being dark paths that snaked hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth, and others being located in the open air as miners dug into a hill or a mountain. One of the places that has a long, deep, no pun intended, history of mining is the British Isles. One of the major reasons for the Roman conquest of Britain was the mineral wealth that Britain contained at the time. Throughout the countryside, mines had been the major source of income for generations over thousands of years. The deposits of iron, copper, tin, and lead allowed for Britain to become an economic stronghold well into the medieval period. In particular, Cornwall is home to the ruins of mines dating back to the Bronze Age in about 2150 BC. These mines lasted until the 1990s for the most part, but at the time of this episode, a new mine for battery-grade lithium has recently opened in Cornwall. As this was the main occupation commodity for such a long period, there came to be a set of myths and rules associated with mining, and the forces outside of human control that came along with it. The most commonly held belief in these mines is the knocker. In long ago days, where a mine could be owned by a family or even a local individual, the knocker was thought to call out to miners by knocking on the stone walls within the mine, directing them to the richest veins of ore. Knockers were described as being small, wizened, elfin miners. These diminutive creatures were often depicted as wearing a set of mining clothes made in miniature and carrying similarly small tools for the job. In many depictions, they're almost goblin-like, with a reptilian or bat-like face and often a small candle on their hat to act as a light source, not too far outside what a human miner of about the same time would wear. Some theories regarding the origins of the knocker is that they may have been seen as a form of anti-Semitism, as in the 11th and 12th century, many miners were Jews, shortly before all Jews were expelled from the Kingdom of England. When looked at through this lens, a short, money-motivated mining creature often depicted with a large nose and ears, lines up pretty well with an anti-Semitic caricature of Jewish people. As family-owned mines gave way to large industrialized mines, the role of the knockers changed. They went from being spirits that would direct miners to riches, to being guardians, warning miners of potential cave-ins. The knockers' signature wrapping foretold not of riches, but approaching danger. In the 1820s, mining began to experience a large boom of growth in the young United States. As miners pushed further west into the Appalachian mountain range, vast swaths of coal deposits were found. As these new mines opened, immigrants from Britain began to arrive with their experience in working in British mines. When these miners, which included large numbers of Cornish miners, began to work in the coal mines, they brought the folk stories of their homelands with them. This included the knocker, which began to be known as a tommy knocker, in reference to a slang term for British men. This term originated in an intake form that was used during enlistment. The form came pre-filled with the name Tommy Atkins. If the potential soldier was illiterate, something that was much more common in the 19th century than it is now, he would simply make his mark in the form of an X on the name form. This meant that legally within the British Army, that soldier was known as Tommy Atkins, regardless of his actual name. This transition to a new country again changed the story of the Tommyknockers. In the US, the Tommyknockers' appearance changed from being an elfin creature to a ghostly one. Rather than being fairy folk, they were instead the souls of those who had died in the mine, who in an attempt to avoid future tragedy, would protect their comrades from beyond the veil. This is just one of the huge mining mythos that developed around the US. 
As miners moved further west into the areas which would become the states of Arizona, New Mexico, and California, one of the most famous stories of mining culture would be developed, the story of the Lost Dutchman Mine. I want to preface this story by saying that there are hundreds of variations of this story, which are vastly different from each other. There are at least four legendary Lost Dutchman Mines in different places across the southwestern United States. This can be attributed to several similar stories across the American Southwest, being told and retold in saloons, pool halls, around campfires, and even in newspapers across the country. This gigantic game of telephone eventually ended in a huge amalgamated version of the story. So I'm going to be telling you the version that made the most sense to me, given the name of the mine and the details of the story. Our story doesn't actually begin in the United States, nor in the Netherlands despite the name of the mine. It begins in Württemberg, Germany, where a man named Jacob Waltz was born in about 1810. Waltz is believed to have come to the United States in about 1848, during a period of massive migration from Germany. The term Dutch was used as a slang term, using the German phrase Deutsch, meaning German. Much in the same way that the Pennsylvania Dutch communities are actually German in heritage, Waltz was also referred to as Dutch, or Dutchman. By 1860, possibly in an attempt to avoid the rising tensions due to the impending civil war, Waltz moved to the Arizona Territory. Like many of those attempting to homestead the area, Waltz was working in mining and attempting to make his fortune. He was mining near Phoenix in an area known as the Superstition Mountains, near the modern-day town of Apache Junction. Waltz toiled and speculated in the area before finally setting up a mine and hitting an obscenely large vein of gold. As it was such a valued location, Waltz kept the location of the mine a secret. We do have records that during the 1880s, Waltz actually sold a very large amount of gold to the U.S. Mint. He was paid a quarter of a million dollars, which by today's standard is over seven million dollars. During this time, Waltz had purchased a farmstead and was living in Phoenix, and seemingly still operating his mine, the location of which he still held very secretively. It is unknown if Waltz did all his own mining or if he had hired anyone. Given the fact that the location of the mine was lost after Waltz died, it seemed that he was doing all his own labor. In 1891, Phoenix was hit with a huge flood, which destroyed Waltz's farm, and due to the standing water in his home, Waltz is said to have contracted pneumonia. As the disease ravaged his body, Waltz could tell the end was coming. As he lay on his deathbed, he supposedly drew out a crude map and directions to his nurse, a woman named Julia Thomas. The map that was given to Thomas was copied, and many set out to find the lost Dutchman's mine in search of their own riches. This gave rise to many adventurers trying to find this Atlantis-like missing mine. The story hit a new high during the 1930s, when a treasure hunter named Adolf Ruth went looking for the mine. He went missing shortly after setting out into the Superstition Mountains. Six months later, a skull was found that, when compared to Ruth's dental records, matched up. Given that Ruth was 66 at the time and the Superstition Range is known for extremely technical terrain, this was not a completely unforeseen event. What was strange, however, were the two bullet holes in Ruth's forehead from a high-caliber rifle at close range. A month later, about a mile and a half away from where the skull was found, the rest of Ruth's remains were found scattered, but intact. This included a pistol that was fully loaded. I promise that'll become important later. The local police chose not to open a case investigating foul play. The authorities theorized that given his age and the health at the time of the expedition, Ruth was probably a victim of the heat, thirst, or possibly even heart disease. 
I'm not sure about you, but I'm unaware of any heart disease that causes bullet holes to show up in anyone's forehead. Authorities tried to factor in the bullet holes, stating that using the pistol found with the rest of Ruth's remains, that seeing the end was in sight, Ruth took his own life rather than suffer through the final stages of heat stroke or thirst. Remember though, the pistol was still fully loaded. This would have required that Ruth shot himself twice, ejected the spent cartridges, buried them, reloaded, and then died. What is most interesting about the location of where the Lost Dutchman Mine is supposed to be located is that although we have records of Jacob Waltz selling gold to the U.S. Mint, he had no way to mine the gold. Jacob Waltz was a placer miner, meaning that he was experienced in extracting gold from sedimentary rock using a panning method. The Superstition Range was developed due to volcanic activity, and any gold in the area would have to be extracted from quartz, which Waltz would have been unfamiliar with. Dangers in mining were found in more places than marauders and cavens, though. Due to this, mining jobs were often relegated to those willing to work a more dangerous job. In many cases, these positions were filled by immigrants and low-income families that really needed the funds. In Monongah, West Virginia, the immigrant population made up the vast majority of miners working for the Fairmont Coal Company. One day in December 1907, at 10.28 a.m., a huge explosion rocked the number six and number eight coal mines. Officially, at the time of the explosion, 420 men were spread across the two mines. But that number was likely much higher, as it was common practice to take children or other family members into the mine to help out with small tasks. The explosion was so large that the majority of those that were located inside the mines were likely killed instantly. The supports inside the mines that held the roof up were damaged, causing the roof to collapse. When the roof was destroyed, this also destroyed most of the ventilation shafts that brought oxygen down into the mine. The race was on to save as many of those inside as possible. Only 25 minutes after the explosion occurred, rescue crews entered the remains of the mine to try and pull out as many survivors as possible. The rescue crews were on a short clock and were in as much danger as those who had survived the explosion. Within the mine, there were two very dangerous gases, black damp and white damp. Black damp is a mix of nitrogen and carbon dioxide that contains no oxygen, and white damp is carbon monoxide. As breathing equipment was expensive and uncommon, the only thing the rescuers were able to use to help them breathe in the mine was a cloth tied over the nose and mouth, which will not do anything if there's no oxygen in the air. Because there was so much gas that was contained in the mine, only one man was rescued and four additional men were able to escape by their own efforts. Of the 420 people officially in the mine, 58 survived the disaster. Most of the miners working in this mine were immigrants from Europe. The majority of those killed were Italian miners, with 171 of the dead being Italian immigrants. Slavs from across the Austro-Hungarian Empire, modern-day Poles, Serbs, Czechs, etc., were the next largest group affected, with 94 deaths from that community. The exact cause of the explosion was never discovered, but it was likely due to the helmets that the miners wore. These helmets contained acetylene lamps like in our story earlier in this episode. These open flames provided light, but when they came into contact with an area saturated with coal dust or naturally occurring methane pockets, they could cause explosions. The deaths from the Monongah mine disaster ranks as the worst mining disaster in the U.S., and one of the worst in the world. The incidents with the most casualties in mining almost always occur in coal mines, given the extremely flammable nature of coal and the use of open flame lamps and lanterns. 
These would mix with catastrophic results, often bringing down whole mines with the explosion. With the number of deaths that have occurred in mines, either by cave-ins, coal explosions, unbreathable air, or any other number of hazards, is it out of the question I think that Tommyknockers might just be the souls of those killed, trying to protect their comrades in the mine from similar fate? I'm not sure, but I will tell you, if I ever happen to be in a cave or a mine and hear knocking, I'm taking that as my cue to leave. Thank you for listening to Folklore Fever. This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. The opening theme is by Miyu. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.